Hello, this is Tom McSweeney, and you're very welcome to my maritime podcast and program, the only regular broadcast source reporting on Ireland's maritime sector, its development, culture, history, and traditions. Ireland has a lot of maritime territory, 880,000 square kilometres, stretching out 200 nautical miles from the shoreline, ten times the size of the island we live on. Sounds a lot, but there's intense spatial marine pressure growing close to shore, where wind energy developers are seeking sites for turbines to be driven into the seabed with potential effects on prime fishing grounds. Wind farms also restrict other marine activities around them, including leisure. Marine spatial pressure is a major issue affecting our maritime future, but hasn't been getting a lot of public attention, nor in political debate or media attention. So it was good that the National Seafarers Conference in Limerick, with speakers involved from all sides, did highlight the issue. Two chief executives of major fishing organisations were there. John Lynch, CEO of the Irish South and East Fish Producers, and A. O'Donnell of the Irish Fish Producers Organisation, who outlined their views. Well, certainly it's well understood by the traditional sector. We know the lines on the maps. We know where the new uh, wind farms are being proposed. The phase one projects, of which there are four or five, are really an issue for the sector. Uh, There's competition for a very valuable sea space. We're talking about fishing areas. We're talking about nursery beds. We're talking about breeding grounds. So that needs to be addressed. And not only do we need communication, but we need effective consultation. And does the industry have strong enough to get what it needs? And strong enough reputation? Strong enough power, for example? Well, we're, we're lucky in so much as that the industry is of one view on most of these matters. We sit together at various working groups. We're taking a very firm line on it, but we are insisting on effective communication uh, and mitigation because we can't have a situation where our members suffer at the expense of the new wind energy. John Lynch from the southeast. You've had your problems already in trying to make the case and stronger cases have to be made, don't they? They do if you um, listen to the, 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 the state's ambitions and we've no problem with the ambitions, but you have to realise what an ambition means. So if the state has an ambition for 37 gigawatts of ORE energy by 2050, you have to recognise that current, in the current technology that takes 12,000 square kilometres. And as our colleague Michael Keaton stated last year in his presentation, that is a line from the west of Ireland to Newfoundland two kilometres wide. So it's, it's a lot of water. And if this is to be developed in Ireland in the current technology, yes, we have 450,000 square kilometres of ocean, but the vast majority of that is not usable at the moment because the technology is not there to use it. So all of this ORE potential will or is planned to be developed in the waters shoaler than I think 180 to 100 metres. And that comes to what A was saying about the spatial pressure, that they're looking for space on the same place where traditional fisheries yeah. have had it. That, that is the problem, yeah. Once, once, once you're in that proximity to the coast, you're in fishing grounds no matter where you go. So, as I've stated before in the presentations that I've done at this event before, that no matter where you go, you're going to affect fishing industry in some respect. It's to try and minimise that and make sure that 
people that are affected are looked after and are helped to move their operation to whatever they have to do and, and compensate it while they're in the process of doing that. But is that being recognised? I think it's beginning to be recognised because we've been beating the drum, as you know, for a while and we've been uh, around different fora. We were instrumental in the setting up of the Seafood Awari Working Group and we were also very much instrumental in bringing, bringing forward of the um, plan-led process. I think the plan-led process wasn't to be brought in until way further down the road in the Jordan regime, but we actually had it, had it in, in the end introduced for phase two projects, which was not the plan in the beginning. So generally, uh, things are being recognised? We have to say, we have to compliment certain government departments, particularly DEC, for the fact that they're engaging with the industry. They're taking on board what's being proposed and submitted. That's an ongoing process. A. O'Donnell and John Lynch two of the fishing industry's leading chief executives. The conference was hosted by the National Maritime College and the main sponsor was the Simply Blue Group, one of the leading blue economy developers focused on replacing fossil fuels with clean energy. Former Naval Officer Captain Brian Fitzgerald is their Director of External Affairs and Stakeholder Liaison. Well, most certainly if you're putting uh, 37 gigawatts of offshore wind into the sea by 2050, there's going to be a considerable amount of sea space taken up. But what I would say, in ge- and, and actually that, that underpins fear, and I think that's very, very reasonable that there would be fear amongst other marine users, most particularly fishermen, that uh, all this uh, new industry is arriving uh, at sea. I would argue that the scale and size of Ireland's maritime jurisdiction is so enormous that there actually is room uh, for everybody and there is room for biodiversity to thrive and therefore lead to a healthier fishing industry. But what this conference is doing uh, and it's at its essence is to provide information so that people can understand it. And those fears can be questioned, or questions can be brought, sourced from those fears, and good information, quality information can be given so that people at least understand it. And once we understand it, we can enter into proper consultation on what to do. Well, that point is coming across clearly. Uh, Simply Blue, your company, organises this conference. Your interest, obviously, would be in developing the fishing industry people seem to say that everything is being pushed close to shore because there's not enough depth to operate further out. Yeah, that, 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 that is, I can understand that as a fear. That's not quite, we'll say, that's a kind of a current situation. Because naturally, when it comes to the technology for offshore winds, the thing you would do first is the fixed bottom technology. In other words, the, the wind turbines that can be drilled into the seabed. Um, and then, so to do that, you need shallow water. So the shallow water is naturally closer to the shore. Um, so you start in the Irish Sea and you probably move around onto the southeast coast. And then it gets deeper. And when it gets deeper, I'm talking now plus 100 metres, for example, um, you start moving towards floating offshore wind technology. Um, and whereas floating offshore wind technology is, is ready, as a technology worldwide, uh, you would understand that people would wish to do the fixed bottom technology first. Um, And that's where the fears lie. Uh, So I think just to put those fears uh, away 
Uh, not to get rid of them completely, but to at least address them as best as possible is through collaboration and consultation. And we have that at the ORE, um, Seafood ORE Working Group, uh, where we sit across the table um, or around the table, really, between the offshore renewable energy industry and the fishing community um, and the wider seafood community, indeed, including aquaculture. And we have very, very detailed conversations about how best to manage this. Yeah, the impression seems to be that what's planned might be put on top of traditional fisheries and there's need for effective consultation, effective communication, and that's not there yet? Uh, no, I do think that it is there. I think there's a legacy fear here. Uh, and again, that, that, that fear is well-founded. Uh, the legacy fear is that uh, for the Phase 1 projects in particular, which are in the RRC, they have been around, some of them, up to 20 years. So... The, the phase one projects themselves would argue that this was known for a very, very long time. And um, However, those phase one projects uh, were re- received their maritime area consents under a developer-led regime. Uh, we are now in a state-led regime. So the situation where the lines on maps or communication are happening arguably as it should do. That's not to say that the phase ones didn't do everything right. Uh, it is to say that there is a fear around that. That should now be gone because now it's state-led and the state will follow um, the correct protocols and procedures to ensure that the, the maximum amount of, of public consultation takes place on where these things will be built. And we are waiting now for that uh, new DMAP on the southeast coast to be published, which will go forward then for Octus approval, after an exhaustive process of public consultation about it. So everybody's had their say, and only now will the area be selected. But if you look back to the phase one projects, which is just four, um, uh, plus yeah, plus there'll be another two that didn't receive a maritime area consent, they're working on those so they could come as well. But just the four, uh, those projects have been around for many years, many years. And I think that there's a certain obligation on the stage that when projects have been around for such a long time that perhaps they're the most advanced and they stand the best chance of us making our 2030 targets. So they, they kind of have to be, um, we'll say, uh, supported. But I, I think now by everybody, I'm not saying, and I, but anybody who has a fear about this, um, I don't believe, and I haven't come across this, there's anybody in the offshore renewable energy sector that wants to make any gain at the expense of anybody else. You'd be hopeful, so, that agreement will be reached in all this development? Oh, I'd be more than hopeful, Tom. I I, I think there most certainly will be agreement. I mean, you and I are mariners for, for, for a long time, and I don't think we have ever in our history seen anything like the maritime opportunity that is before us right now. Um, we do not want to make that gain in terms of offshore renewable energy, as I say, at the expense of any single fisherman or a group of fishermen or any coastal community. But actually, I think the potential maritime industrial revolution that is upon us is perhaps the greatest thing that has ever happened to this island nation. Captain Brian Fitzgerald of the Simply Blue Group, who was the main organiser of the Seafarers Conference, which debated the marine spatial squeeze. It is a vital issue for Ireland's maritime offshore renewable energy development. That's called ore for the coastal communities, the fishing industry, the seafood sector and the marine leisure, all amongst concerned areas. I didn't see any other journalist from the national media reporting the conference while I was there. 
I'll be writing extensively about it in the March edition of the Marine Times newspaper. On the same day as the Seafarers Conference and also in Limerick, the country's fish farmers discussed the future of their sector at the IFA Aquaculture Annual Meeting. They are an important part of seafood production. Michael Malloy is their chairman. Based in Westport County, Mayo, he owns Black Shell Farm in Clue Bay, where he began mussel farming in 1983. You have to have a passion for fish farming, you told me. It's not an easy business. I'd say in one word, it's challenging. Um, we've got a lot of um, combination of global events, environmental events, difficult markets, cost of living crisis, uh, higher input costs. Um, and also we've got the underlying licensing issue, which is by no means uh, a done deal. The minister announced coincidentally with the conference, a new plan. But is there a lot new in it for you? Well, to be fair, it was published in October, so it's not exactly brand new, but he took the opportunity to launch it today. I mean, there's a lot of good material in it. Uh, Caroline Bokel, the BIM CEO, presented very nicely. And uh, there's a lot of it centering around uh, the social license, engaging with the, with the, the, the population, basically the communities, uh, to be transparent. Uh, to be innovative and um, to be just to improve our image. So the social license is a huge part of that plan and uh, BIM have taken that on board and it is built into their strategy and I think that will hold stand to us as an industry and enable us to go forward, uh, you know, the future and embrace that with a more positive feeling. That means selling yourselves effectively to the public, doesn't it? Yes, it means, number one, informing the public is what we're doing. So to make sure that the public are engaged in the consultation process, they have access to the information that's been shared, be it online or whatever. So they've improved their websites. They've made that information easier to access for the public. Because in the past, we have people who are concerned about agriculture had no access to information. And that generally antagonized the situation and uh, caused them concern and legitimate concern. If people don't know what's going to happen out in a given bay, it's a shared space. They become they become anxious. So we just want to take the heat out of that anxiety and show them what is being proposed in the most transparent way possible using technology, obviously improved websites and imagery and whatever information that will take that anxiety away. Aquaculture fish farming is still a very challenging, even risky business for people involved and it's hugely challenging. It is, but I mean, it's also maturing a bit. So um, the companies have matured, the operators have matured, obviously. <laughs> Some of them are more mature than they'd like to be. Uh, but obviously that has made them resilient, both in their characters and financially. Um, but you are in the environment, you're unprotected from the environment. So uh, the environment is throwing up new challenges. As you're probably aware, we've had record temperatures, seawater temperatures last year. Uh, were four degrees above normal last June. Uh, particularly of uh, Donegal and you know this already in January it was two degrees north higher than normal so 
that's a great cause for concern. We've seen increased mortalities in uh, gigas oysters uh, that are growing on bags and trestles, and also the fin fish industry is challenged as the temperatures warm up. We're already on the southern boundary of viable fin fish farming, and that boundary is sort of creeping northwards, and that's something that just has to be addressed and taken on board. One aspect I noticed today that probably would be encouraging, a lot of young people at your conference. Yeah, it was lovely to see that. A lot of kind of like uh, looking at a horse show with a mirror and fall at foot. You know, it was very nice to see uh, dads coming in with their with their sons or daughters. Uh, that, that was really gratifying. And this year it was noticeable. And that is really... Because this a shared passion going from one generation to the next. I'm fortunate to be in the same position myself. I have a son involved in my business, so it's very gratifying. That does encourage the belief then that there's continuity in the development of aquaculture amongst young people coming in. Yeah, well, aquaculture, to be successful in aquaculture, you have to be fairly passionate. And normally a father is able to pass on that passion to the next generation and then the next generation takes that up. And uh, it's also... I suppose it's a bit more challenging than traditional ag- agriculture in that there's a whole vast array of technology you can apply to it and apply different solutions that are, are you know, innovative in the extreme. So that's really, I think that ignites an interest in younger people to get involved. It was indeed encouraging for our island's maritime future to see the number of younger people at both the aquaculture and seafarers conferences. Michael Malloy there, Chairman of IFA Aquaculture. Now there's a big upsurge of demand for pets to travel on ferries with their owners and in cabins set aside especially for them. Brittany Ferries Armoury has reopened the Cork Roscoff service for this year after a refit which provides its first pet-friendly cabins, as Hugh Bruton, Brittany's General Manager in Ireland, told me. Well, the new cabins for the pets are because there's a huge demand for it. And the Armourique was one of the only ships since it was launched in 2009 that didn't have any kennels or specific pet cabins. All our ships, the new ones, the Flexors, all have pet cabins, 22 up to 25, but the Armourique didn't. And on the Cork-Roscoff route, they're so popular, we took the ship off when it was on dry dock, or earlier this year actually, and we put 19 free, uh, pet cabins into them. And already... That's what people want. They're the first to go. They're like the deluxe cabins, Tom. People book these first. Their pets are more important almost than their kids. This is what we're finding. As a pet owner myself, I, I have discovered that. And we have people here at the office who have their pets and they bring them. And it is a great experience to be able to bring your pet in comfort, in their own cabin, without a muzzle and all of that. And the vacuum clean. Listeners will ask inevitably, as I'm asking this question, what about the biological toilet needs of the dogs? Are they catered for aboard? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, <laughs> it's kind of a thing that people don't think about. It's like, you know, when you're putting in new toilets and all of that, when you're carrying 2,000 people on all these ships, how do you handle the normal, necessary human needs and food waste and all of that? But yeah, all of that is catered for. There are teams there. They're cleaned. And remember, we have to get licenses from the Department of Agriculture to be able to carry pets as well. So they have to be carried under strict conditions and for health and cleanliness. So these cabins are given specially clean. They're separated in the ship anyway. They're in their own particular area. So they have their laminated floors. So they're absolutely set up for pets and for their, obviously, their owners. So they're like every other cabin, except that the flooring and the facilities would be a lot more conducive to pets having to do their, their basic needs. And then the products for cleaning them, 
and for sorting that, that's part of the owner's responsibility. But Brittany Ferries make sure we do the deep clean of each cabin until the next sailing. Absolutely. And there's a promenade for them. There is. There's their own separate walking area, um, which people can, do, and it's separated from the rest of the passengers as well. So they can walk with their pets and meet fellow pet owners. And you know, there's nothing like when you go on a walk and you meet another pet owner. It's a normal way to get to meet and talk to people who are going on holidays, bringing their pets. So it's kind of an added extra, I suppose, way of bringing people together, even on the ship with their pets in that pet area. And generally, how is the ferry business going between Ireland and France now? Because as well as operating to Cork, you're operating from Rosslare. Yeah, since we moved to Rosslare uh, with our e-flexor ships and we have two sailings to Spain, you know, to, at the moment to Santander, but normally Rosslare Bilbao, and we have a, a two sailings to Cherbourg as well. They're doing very well. France is actually going up at the moment for over last year. And since 2019, we've seen exponential growth on our routes to France on Cork Roscoff and indeed on Cherbourg Rosslare. And of course, as we're the only operator to Spain, there's a huge interest in that. And of course, pet cabins have always been on the Salamanca since they were designed. Again, it's going very well and we're already 7 to 8% up on both France and Spain on the same period last year. So it's looking good. Hugh Bruton, General Manager of Brittany Ferries in Ireland. Steneline tells me that it has also carried thousands of pets on its ferry services. Now here's our resident historian, Anton O'Callaghan, in response to listener comments following up on last month's story and linking Dun Lera with international maritime warfare. I mentioned last month that the first United States naval ship to round Cape Horn was the Essex under the command of David Porter. Well, many thanks to Cormac, who contacted the programme to say that the Essex actually became a prison hulk at Kingstown Harbour, or Dunlera today, and that at one point the famous Admiral Farragut had served aboard the ship. You are right, Cormac. She was in Kingstown, but not before she was in Cork in 1823, where she actually was hulked or made unfit for sea before being taken to Kingstown. The USS Essex was built by Enos Briggs in Salem, Massachusetts, to a design by James Hackett, and paid for by the people of Salem and Essex County. She didn't have armoury that could stand against more heavily armed warships, but nevertheless was launched in September 1799 and presented to the US Navy that December. She saw action in the First Barbary War in the early 1800s against the Ottomans and the Moroccans, and again fought in the 1812 war against Britain. Under the command of Captain David Porter, in August of that year, she captured the HMS Alert and a number of other prizes before sailing for the Pacific, where she engaged and wrought havoc on the British whaling fleet there, capturing 12 whalers over the following year. In January 1814, she made her way to Valparaiso for replenishment, but was trapped there by the British ships Phoebe and Cherub. Porter decided that he would make for open sea before British reinforcements could arrive, but as he did so, ran into heavy weather and lost the main mast. The Essex was no match for the British ships and was captured with the loss of over 80 of her crew. She was taken to England, repaired, and became the HMS Essex of the Royal Navy, serving until hulked at Cork and taken to Kingstown, where she operated as a prison ship until 1834, before being sold at public auction in 1837. Her anchor was actually discovered embedded in the pier in Dunleary quite recently during resurfacing works. What then of Admiral Farragut? James Glasgow Farragut was born in 1801, son of Geordi Farragut Mescaida, a Spanish Balearic merchant captain who immigrated to America in 1776 
and his wife Elizabeth Shine of Scotch-Irish descent. While living in New Orleans, Elizabeth died of yellow fever, after which James was fostered by naval officer David Porter, and in honour of his foster father, James adopted the name David. His naval career began in 1810, when he was added to the naval roles with the rank of boy, and in December was made a midshipman at age just nine. In the 1812 war, he fought under his foster father David Porter aboard the Essex, and aged 11, he was given the job of prize master, bringing one of the Essex prizes to port. In March 1814, when the Essex was captured at Valparaiso, the young Farragut was wounded and captured in that engagement. War with Britain ended in 1815, and in 1823, David Farragut was given command of the USS Ferret and fought against Caribbean pirates. In 1825, he was promoted to lieutenant. In the late 1840s, Farragut, now a commander, fought in the American-Mexican War, and in the 1850s, he oversaw the commissioning of Mare Island Navy Yard near San Francisco. Although originally from New Orleans, Farragut was a Unionist, and so during the Civil War, he served with the Union Navy, taking the city and port of his childhood in a decisive engagement in 1862, following which he was made a rear admiral. In 1864, Farragut won the battle at Mobile Bay, Alabama, the last remaining Confederate port, and it was during this encounter when the USS Tecumseh struck a mine, which were known as torpedoes at the time, and sank, that Farragut, on seeing some of the fleet fall back in fear of the torpedoes, shouted through a trumpet, Damn the torpedoes, four bells, go ahead, full speed. They entered the bay, and Farragut triumphed. Farragut was promoted to Vice Admiral and in 1866 became a full Admiral, the first US naval officer to hold that rank. David Farragut died from a heart attack at age 69 in 1870. More maritime mystery now as Nia Stevenson joins us from RNLI headquarters in Swords County, Dublin. Hopefully by now you will know it's the RNLI's 200th anniversary. There is plenty going on throughout the year, but the events that may have the biggest impact are the ones that bring the charity's history to the fore. Recently, a collection of images from the Ornalize Photography Archive have been released and their issue has one eye-catching feature. The old photos have been colorized, and with that process, a new life has been breathed into them. From community events to candid snapshots, the 11 black and white images have been painstakingly cleaned and colorized with folds, scratches and dust removed using digital technology to shine a light on 200 years of saving lives at sea. Featured in the collection is the most decorated RNLI lifesaver, Henry Blogg, who was born on the 6th of February, 1876. Henry served for 53 years on Cromer's lifeboats before retiring in 1947, having saved 873 lives and been awarded many honours, including three gold and four silver medals for gallantry. Each image has been brought to life following hours spent on attention to detail, along with research being undertaken to ensure each one gave a true lifelike representation. However, my favourite one, naturally, has to be the Irish one. There isn't a lifeboat in sight, but rather it's a family portrait. In it, three members of the one family pose smiling and linking arms for the camera. The two gentlemen are flanking a lady dressed in a hat with a smart overcoat and a proud expression. 
the men are in their lifeboat kit, unrecognisable from the kit of today, with life jackets that look like sacks belted on them. It is, in fact, Ballycotton Coxon Patrick, Patsy, Sliney, pictured alongside Mrs. Sliney and their son William at an annual Ornalai meeting in 1936. This was the same year of the famous Daunt Rock lightship rescue, when the vessel came adrift off Ballycotton in terrible conditions with 12 people on board. The lifeboat crew spent 49 hours at sea and eventually rescued all those on board. Patsy was awarded the Ornalai Gold Medal for Gallantry and the rest of his crew, including his son William, received bronze medals. Will Sliney, a graphic artist for Marvel and the great-grandson of Patsy, is a volunteer with Ballycotton Ornalai and has recorded an episode of the Ornalai's 200 Voices podcast where he speaks about the rescue. And if you're down that way on your travels, the lifeboat that the Ballycotton lifeboat crew used the Mary Stanford, was saved from being scuttled and is now sitting resplendent on a plinth overlooking Ballycotton Bay in East Cork. How's that for one old image and an incredible story behind it? Indeed, Neil Stevenson there from the Yaren Alive. So it's time to drop anchor again. Sound production by Justin Marr. If you'd like to contact me, my email is podcast at gmail.com. That's tomxweeney.com podcast at gmail.com phone text 0872 555 197 0872 555 197 and there's more maritime news and comment throughout the month on our website which you'll find at tomxweeneymaritimepodcast.ie until next month's programme the usual wish of fair sailing mm-hmm.